Morning. So my name is John. Uh, I'm one of the members here. Uh, have you guys ever been through a season of change in your life? Uh, a season where you feel like you're just moving from one location to the next? You know, maybe even just like you're in one location for just a couple months at a time? Well, Amanda, my wife and I, when we were married, we, we got married in 2006. And from 2006 to 2013, or 2012, we moved 13 times. Yeah, it was a lot. I think at the time we didn't really think it was that abnormal because my job meant that we, I spent a lot of time at camps and uh, overseas, and so we were doing a lot of traveling, and so it, we just weren't home that much, and so it didn't seem that abnormal necessarily for us to, for us to be um, so transitory. You know, those are fun and unique, exciting experiences, but I think internally we always kind of long for a little bit of stability. And, um, you know, and we're glad to, to, and happy that God has kept us in one location now for a little while. So if you haven't been around in the last couple months, we've been uh, following the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, who is a, a nomad, as a nomad, was constantly moving from one location to the next. Uh, and in the passage we're looking at today, Abraham gets a taste of some p peace and stability. And as you'll see, he, he literally and figuratively puts down roots uh, in the place where God has provided for him. But before we kind of jump into all that, uh, I'd like to just pray for us. God, I feel uh, especially dependent upon you this morning. God, I know that if you don't come and work in us this morning, none of this matters. God, so please, will you open up your word to us? By your spirit, speak through it to us. God, like Abraham, we call upon you as the all-wise, all-powerful, covenantally faithful, and scandalously kind creator king. God, peer into the deepest recesses of our hearts. Use your word like a scalpel cutting into our heart and our minds. Do soul-saving surgery. Heal us. Make us strong. Make us fit for battle against the enemy. God, we need you. You are what we need. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So in the story we're reading today, there are two main characters, Abraham and Abimelech. And as we read it, I want you to ask yourself a couple questions. Specifically, does your faith in God reflect the man Abraham, who encountered God but whose fear kept him focused on control and self-protection, all of which primarily leaves him as a spectator, watching God work from a distance in the lives of other people? Or do you resonate with the faith of the other man, Abraham, who encountered God and drew close to him? And rather than being a spectator, he became a participant, committed to being part of what God was doing in the world. Though we frequently must trust God without any clear evidence or on the basis of promises alone, and though he doesn't understand all of God's plan, he follows. He accepts what some would call a risky life because he is learning to trust the sovereign, 
wise, and long-enduring God. Now, there's a little bit of backstory that I want to bring you all into. I know some of you haven't, haven't been here, so I'd like to just kind of back up. So we've been talking about Abraham. When Abraham was about 70 years old, God told him that he was going to bless him, that he was going to multiply his descendants like as numerous as the stars, and he was going to give them a land. So God called him to leave where he was going and travel to some place he didn't know. He said, hey, I'm going to show you this place. And Abraham's like, okay, let's go. So the easy way for us to remember that is land, descendants, and blessing, if you've ever heard, heard that. Land, descendants, and blessings. That's kind of the summary of God's promise to Abraham. So thus far, though God has given Abraham glimpses of the land, the last 30 years has been spent moving from place to place to place. And Abraham has made some significant blunders along the way, but the trajectory of his life has been a growing trust in God. One of Abraham's biggest questions all along this path has been, God, how am I going to have descendants when you haven't given me a son? And what we heard about two weeks ago is that Sarah, his wife, though she was very old, had a son. They named him Isaac. God was showing Abraham his faithfulness to his promises, promises that were made a long time before there was a son in Abraham's life. So one of the guys Abraham interacted with along the, the way is the guy that we're talking about today. His name's Abimelech. So in chapter 20, Abraham was going through the region of Gerar with his wife Sarah, and Abimelech it was the king of that area. And though she's old, apparently Sarah is just really beautiful. She was so beautiful that Abraham was afraid of the people in the area, so afraid that he said, hey, Sarah, I, I need you to just tell people that you're my sister. Because at the time, foreigners were not treated very well. You show up, there's a good chance you're going to get killed if they want to take your wife. And so that was Abraham's concern. He's like, they're going to take my, they're going to kill me, and they're going to take Sarah. And so he said, just tell people that you're my sister. Well, that plan didn't go well, if you remember. The plan backfired, and Abimelech, the king of Gerar, seeing this beautiful woman who doesn't have a husband, apparently, because Abraham said everybody's, she's telling everybody that she's the sister. She said, he says, well, I want you in my harem. So he takes her, and before the king had the opportunity to sleep with her, he has an encounter with God. God comes to him in a dream, and he says to Abimelech, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And Abimelech was just terrified. I mean, he was immediately concerned that God was going to wipe out everybody because he was mad about what Abimelech had done. And he says, I didn't, I didn't know God, sorry. So he pleads his innocence, saying that he didn't know, and God receives it. He says, so Abimelech immediately sought to go make it right. He went to Abraham, gave him his wife back, and said, why didn't you should have told me? And then he gave him a bunch of gifts, animals, and uh, he ended up giving him like a thousand pieces of silver. He gave him all these things back to Abraham, not back to him, but gave them to him as gifts. Abimelech was seeking to do the right thing out of fear of Abraham's God. So now here in chapter 21, we're looking at Abimelech again. This is chapter 21, verse 22. We can put that passage up. 
At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Have you ever been caught in a lie? Or have you ever caught someone else in a lie? I think if we're honest, everyone has dealt with somebody who, was, who had dealt falsely, like what Abraham had done with Abimelech. And going on from that, you, you have a hard time trusting that person, or it's hard to regain that trust. This is what's going on with Abimelech. Though we could not officially call Abraham a liar because there was some sort of loophole about Abraham calling uh, her his sister, but he did not trust him to act in good faith. And so he's in effect saying, Abraham, listen, God, I see that God is on your side. I remember because he threatened to kill me. But I need you to promise me that you're going to act honestly with me. No deception. And I need you to treat me with kindness. I need you to treat my family with kindness. I brought your wife back to you. I gave you sheep and cattle. I paid you with silver and told you to settle anywhere you wanted in my land. Abimelech needed to make sure this wasn't going to happen again. He feared Abraham's God and feared what might happen to him and his family. So Abraham said, I will swear. I think that he recognized why Abimelech probably was saying those things. He promised to abide by Abimelech's demands. Abraham's sins are bearing consequences in this part of the story. The, principles, the principle we see here is that sin tends to follow the sinner, continues to be a source of chaos and disruption, even after the mistake was made. Abraham's sin not only created relational tension between him and the king, but almost lost him his wife, potentially putting God's promise to him in jeopardy of needing an heir, and he almost got someone kid, killed. Abraham was fortunate to not have faced something more serious from the hand of Abimelech than what he got. He got far better than he deserved. Abraham's story is much like ours when it comes to sin. We make mistakes and then have to deal with consequences which are inconvenient but often less severe than what we deserve. For the Christian, there's an ultimate reality here. Jesus took the cosmic penalty for both Abraham's sin and our sin. We, along with Abraham, not only don't get the penalty we deserve, but we are instead treated like royalty by God, adopted into his family, and share in the benefits of being the child of a king. Even our failures, God uses to teach us and train us, to discipline us. God walks with Abraham, and he walks with the Christian, cleaning up our messes, fulfilling the promises that he made despite our failures, even through our failures. This becomes even more clear in the life of Abraham as the story progresses. Let's look at verse 25. So what we see here is that the confrontation isn't over, okay? Abraham also has a bone to pick with Abimelech. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. 
So Abraham's complaint here is that some of Abimelech's servants had taken a well from him that he had dug. It was his well. Now, it's important to remember about this area. This is mostly desert. And so a well was extremely important and valuable to the people in the area. It was the source for them to be able to live and survive there. But like Sarah, Abimelech had no idea he had done something wrong, or rather his servants did something wrong. And this is kind of how the scriptures portray Abimelech. He's, he almost seems like a moral guy. He writes the wrongs that he knows about. So Abraham brought this to him, and he said, this is my well. And now each person has brought their grievances to the table. Verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Now, we talked about covenants in the past. What happens in a covenant is that animals are brought, and they are cut in half. This is basically like an old uh, way of doing a contract, like a really strong contract, like a contract with a death penalty built into it. They cut the animals in half, and they walk in between the animals. Each party walks in between the animals, and they say, if... I break my vow, then you can do to me what we did to these animals. So it's a very strong agreement. Now, in this case, Abraham's promise was to not deal falsely with Abimelech anymore and to be kind to Abimelech and his family going forward. Now, Abimelech promised that this well would belong to Abraham. So they, they kind of have this agreement, okay? They made a covenant. Both parties made vows. But then Abraham goes a little bit further beyond the covenant. So they did, did the ceremony, and then, they, then all of a sudden you see these five lambs coming in. Verse 28. Abraham sets, or sorry, not five, seven, my bad. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So in giving these extra lambs, Abraham was going beyond the covenant to make a point. He gave this extra gift to demonstrate that he was telling the truth about the well. So he wasn't just making agreement, making contract and said, you know, I'm giving you this and you're giving me that. This is my well now. And he's saying, no, I dug this well. This well was thoroughly his. He dug it and he covenanted with the king that it was his. This agreement satisfied everyone involved. So Abimelech and his army got up and left to return home. Verse 33. After, or sorry, Abraham planted a Tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So after the agreement, it says that Abraham planted a tree called a Tamarisk tree. Now, this tree was kind of representative of the work that God had done on Abraham's behalf. In many respects, it was much like an altar. There are other places that Abraham called on the name of the Lord, but the, and there was always an altar. But instead, he planted a tree. 
I think if you, and if you look into the background of this tree, it's got some interesting uh, background to it, but it represented God's establishing, even rooting Abraham's family in the land, this southern piece of the future land of Israel. And there's a reason that Abraham planted it next to a well, the well that he had made a covenant clarifying that it was his, that he dug. This was his place. And then it says that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. In other words, he worshiped God. He gave thanks to God. He's probably seeking further help and direction. Calling upon the name of the Lord is what one does when one recognizes that God is what you really need. Calling on the name of the Lord is what one does when one recognizes that God is what we really need. Here I think Abraham is celebrating God's work in his life. The road has been long, and it's not completely over, but he's now come to a space that it's pretty thoroughly his. That one day will be part of the land God promised. This is his well, both because he dug it and it was attested to by the king. And he's not just celebrating, but he's commemorating God's work by planting this special tree. I've had this conversation with, with Kevin before about when the right time to plant his tree is. Anybody know when the right time to plant a tree is? Like yesterday or like 20 years ago. Because when you plant a tree, you don't really get to enjoy it. It's a lot, it takes a long time for a tree to grow, right? It takes time. I know even at my, uh, my in-law's house, my wife, Amanda, was part of planting trees. They have this shelter belt. They planted a bunch of trees that are all really small. She didn't really get to enjoy those. But my kids have enjoyed those for years because of how tall those trees have become. He planted these, this tree next to a well so that for generations, people would come and sit under that tree, that they would sip the water from the well that he dug, got ultimately secure. This kind of happens when we remember significant events in our life. We celebrate the work that God has done in us. We're putting kind of a flag in the ground and remembering not just for us, but for the generations after us. And we saw this week, saw this a little bit last week with baptisms. Baptism is the point when your faith really goes public. You're, you make a statement to the world that Jesus is your king and no one else, and that there's no turning back as his follower. You're committed to him and his church for the rest of your life. There's a figurative tree planted in the ground saying, you're at home among God's people. Roots digging in. And finally, I want you to notice that Abraham is calling out to the everlasting God. So the term is not so much here about how God is eternal, but it's more like saying that God is the ultra, 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 ultra Iron Man runner. He's the long enduring God. He, came he was God before Abraham, and he was with Abraham during the ups and downs and ups and downs. And he is God after Abraham, continuing on this promise that isn't even really fully fulfilled for thousands of years later. He is a covenant-keeping God who will watch this tree 
and this well generation after generation after generation. So there's a lot that we could talk about in this story. There's a lot that stands out, but I'm really drawn what's happening to Abraham. God's got him on a journey that's mostly oriented around something that God is doing in the world. It's not just about Abraham's life, but the lifespan of human history. It's easy for us to look back at Abraham now and see how this story was even part of our story today. It's a masterpiece that God has been painting for thousands of years. But at the time, Abraham didn't understand that. He didn't know what God was doing, what was going on ahead of him. You know, some of you are probably like Abraham more than you realize. You're embracing or chasing the faith of Abraham. You're trying to walk faithfully with God. Sure, you've made mistakes, but God has proven himself forgiving and faithful, and you're still following him. In difficulties, you you resonate with the disciples that Jesus is so compelling that you have no other option. Where are you going to go? It's obvious. Even when you don't fully understand what God's doing, that's where you're going. God has captured your heart. And I want to encourage you. It's easy to get caught up in what you don't know about God's will, that you begin to forget what God has already done in you and what God's doing around you. I think we could take a lesson from Abraham's book here to plant a tree or build something for the generations after you. Celebrate the faithful, covenant-keeping, everlasting God, not just for your sake, but for the sake of the people to come. Commemorate Celebrate the work of God in your life. He is doing good things. Also, I want to say something about, to those of you who feel like your, your faith is more like Abraham's than Abimelech's, I want to say something about your personal ministry to others. You know, Abimelech recognized that God was with Abraham. I don't know if you caught that at the beginning. It said that he, that, He saw that God was with him. You know, this isn't the last time that someone says that uh, about someone in the Bible. Things like that are said all over the Old Testament. They're saying, I I recognize that God's with you. I recognize that God's with you. Nicodemus said it to Jesus. He said, look, there's no way you could do the things that you're doing unless God was with you. The Jewish rulers said it to the disciples. The more faithful you walk with God and seek to follow him, the more likely others are going to notice. But to be clear, I'm not saying that it will be because everything is rosy. Sometimes being faithful means you respond kindly and patiently when people hate you. That's uncomfortable. Sometimes being faithful means Continuing to trust God when it seems your world is falling apart. People notice your calm in the storm and your belief that God will work all things together for your good. Even when everything seems like it's on fire. And don't underestimate what God is doing apart from your awareness. Remember, 
Abimelech had an encounter with God on the backside that Abraham very well may not have known about. God is working all the time. In fact, you should be expecting God to be confronting and calling the people around you. There are also likely some of you that maybe more resonate with Abimelech. To be honest, I think we all have a little bit of Abimelech in us. Like Abimelech, maybe you think of yourself as a pretty good person. Uh, You even try to right wrongs when you know about them. But the reality is that you're not real focused on drawing close to God and following him when he calls you to something a little bit risky. In general, you're kind of keeping God at his distance. You're resisting his call. You know, some of you, like Abimelech, seek to control the world in which you're living. If there's chaos, you step in and try to get promises and make deals to keep things manageable and safe, to guarantee your success. Your concern is self-protection and protection of the things that you care about. In many respects, your life may be comfortable, but God is distant. Even in our gathering this morning, are you here to meet with God and his people? Or are you here for some other purpose? You know, I could see Abimelech walking into a place like this and saying, wow, there are a lot of good people here that could help me achieve my goals. At the end of the day, though, you're not here because you are calling upon the everlasting God, because he is what you need. You're here for something else, your goals, your plans. And man, no matter where you're at, we're glad you're here. Whether you've got a faith like Abraham or a faith like Abimelech. But if any of this Abimelech-type faith is like you, I want you to know God has something so much deeper for you. He's inviting you into something more than just watching him work from a distance. It's a call deeper than trying to make good kids at church or develop business contacts, make good friends or control the world you're living in. God is inviting you to something deeper. He's inviting you into a relationship of nearness, but that nearness may make you uncomfortable. He's calling you to surrender to him everything you have and want. And in the process, find exactly what you really need. You know, most of the desires we're talking about are good desires, but not when they take precedence over God's call. We've been invited to take these good desires and submit them to God, to embrace a world that puts God and his priorities at the center, at the forefront of your focus, rather than self-protection and control. His invitation is to a life that embraces a little risk to follow God's call, because you believe that he truly holds all things in the palm of his hands, because he is sovereignly in control and is guaranteed good things 
for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So rather than standing at arm's length, it's a life that draws closer to God. Believing that what you really need is found in him. He's calling you to a life that walks closely and is sometimes uncomfortable. Follows him into risk rather than protects yourself and stays safe. Jesus constantly confronted the things that have a tendency to take priority in our lives. Sometimes that's money. Sometimes it's family and friends, even food and clothes. But Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. It's not something to worry about. God has got you. And if that's you, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from really trusting Jesus with your whole heart? Maybe it's fear. Maybe you've got an Abimelech-type fear that's not just afraid of God, but also afraid of what might happen. Is it pride? You don't want to admit you're wrong. Is the Spirit stirring in you? Then the invitation to you is to come, to believe, to follow. Finally, I want to draw your attention to one last thing as we move towards communion. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changes everything, even in this story. The message of the gospel is this. God created us to walk in a faithful and happy relationship with him, but humanity, all humanity, rejected God and chose a different route from the designs that he had. This terrible reality is disgraceful to God. A God that's not like a person, but a God who is of infinite value. And rightly, humanity that runs off deserves punishment. But God loved people so dearly that he sought to rescue them so Jesus, who is God in human flesh, came. He came to us to rescue us. He lived the life that we should have lived, the life that God called all of humanity to live. And then he died the death we deserved. He took the punishment that our rejection of God deserved. He took our place. So Abraham and Abimelech, what does this have to say about Abraham and Abimelech? Both of them lived lives that did not fully align with God's design, what God expected of humanity. Fears, lies, deception, human stealing, self-centeredness. They're all part and parcel of the world these men lived in, and it's the world that we live in today. From God's perspective, as the ultimate justice giver in the universe, they both needed punishment. However, God is able to look past the sins of these men, and he's able to look past all the sins of us in this room. He can just look past them. How can the justice giver do that? Is that fair? He can look over sins. 
He can do it because Jesus took that sin on the cross. Abraham and Abimelech's sin, assuming Abimelech was part of God's people later, we don't know. But if you put your trust in Jesus, all those sins, they're on Jesus now, which means you've been washed clean. So now, if your heart has been awakened by God, you have the faith to, you can draw near to God, like Abraham. You can trust him. You can follow him, like Abraham. He loves you like he loved Abraham, not because of your perfection, but because of what he sees when he looks at you. He sees his redeemed child purified by the blood of Jesus who took your sin. If you believe that, then you're a Christian. And as we enter into this time of communion, if the servers could come up, I'm not really sure who that is. As we enter into this time of communion, that's what we celebrate. And this meal is for you, if you're a Christian, if you put your hope and trust in Jesus. Now, as we come to the table this morning, we're doing something like what Abraham did in planting a tree and worshiping God. We're gathering, we're consuming physical elements that are here to point us to the God who gave them. In this particular meal, meal that we eat every Sunday is the message that Jesus' body was broken for us. That's why we break bread. And the juice or the wine, it represents the blood of the covenant. It's red like blood. It's intended to demonstrate. It's intended to remind us. It's intended to proclaim what happened to Jesus on the cross for us. So as we gather together eating this meal, let's remember the gospel and worship the God of the gospel and the God of this meal. The way we celebrate communion here is we get in lines and come right down the the middle of the aisle and the servers will hand you the piece of bread and then you grab the cup of juice or wine. Uh, Be sure to obey your conscience and then go back to your seat and we'll take it all together.